This summer, as the third wave of COVID-19 was ebbing in Toronto, I took over the care of patients in one of my hospital's intensive care units. It was populated by many patients who were technically COVID-19 survivors because they were no longer infected with SARS-CoV-2. Yet weeks to months after their infections had cleared, they were still in the ICU, still dependent on a ventilator for their breathing, and still without any certainty as to whether they would get better. Theirs is a twilight existence, alive, some are fully alert, but with bodies too fragile to survive outside the cocoon of whirring ventilators and dripping medications, providing life support and the attention of a nurse at the bedside 24-7. They are tended to day after day, week after week. Some have described it as a state worse than death. That was Hannah Wunsch reading from her first opinion, That Damn Machine, The Dark Side of Mechanical Ventilators in the ICU. Hannah is a critical care physician at Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto and a professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at the University of Toronto. I'll bring you our conversation after a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley, Chief Operating Officer at STAT, and I'm here with human resources expert Emerson Foster. He's the head of HR for the U.S. business unit at Takeda Pharmaceuticals. Emerson, I know you're committed to fostering diversity, equity, and inclusion at Takeda and across the biopharmaceutical industry. Could you talk a little bit about what industry leaders can do to advance a more inclusive environment? Thanks, Angus. At Takeda, building and maintaining trust is critical to our culture of inclusion, learning, and curiosity. We do this in a number of ways, from enabling a workforce that's as diverse as the communities and patients we serve, to ensuring employees can live their purpose and speak up while confident that others will listen. Establishing that foundation of trust can help us achieve greater health equity and balanced representation. It's clear we're making important progress, though our journey has just begun. Thanks, Emerson. For more information, visit Takeda.com. That's T-A-K-E-D-A dot com. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Pat Scarrett, editor of First Opinion, stats platform for articles written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others with interesting or illuminating or provocative perspectives to share about the life sciences writ large. It's great to talk with you, Hannah. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. You started us off this morning by talking about a really bleak situation, people stuck in the ICU on ventilators after technically recovering from COVID. How long have you seen someone stay on a ventilator? Oh, years. Uh, we have certainly... Uh, so wait, wait, wait. Did you say years? Yes, absolutely. Oh, my goodness. Um, we have had people in the ICU for years on a ventilator. Um, there are some people who become dependent on mechanical ventilation for their life. Um, some of those people ultimately stabilize in all other ways such that they are able to go home. That is a very small community of patients, but they are out there, people who live at home on ventilators. Um, those are people who really have nothing else wrong with them except something wrong with their lungs that causes them to need that. Um, but what I'm really describing in the article I wrote is this constellation, not just of 
need for mechanical ventilation, but a generalized weakness of the body that puts them in a state where it's not just the ventilator they need, it's all of the trappings of intensive care. Um, and again, this is not unique to COVID. This is something we knew about and have taken care of patients with this situation over and over and over again over time. What is unique with COVID is the number of patients who now are ending up this way just because of the enormous onslaught of ICU admissions over the past year, year and a half. I've never seen a ventilator in action. Can you describe one? Sure. There's a lot of different types of ventilators. Uh, there are some that are portable that are tiny, kind of the size of a lunchbox. Um, but the majority of ventilators and the ones that we deal with taking care of patients in the ICU are a machine a couple feet tall, sort of on wheels, so we can wheel it around. And it's parked by the bedside of a patient. Um, it has essentially hoses that connect to the patient, either to what we call an endotracheal tube, a tube in their mouth into their lungs, or a tracheostomy, which is a little tube that goes just directly from the throat into the lungs. And so that connects the patient to the machine. And then the machine is a very complicated system at this point, you know, a very uh, high tech computerized system that allows us to program in different uh, frequency of breaths, different size of the breaths, how, you know, how many milliliters of, of air or oxygen do you want to give, how much oxygen do you want to give. And it gives you a readout at the top of the, and the display of each breath that the patient's taking so that you can sort of monitor and assess um, how, how they're breathing. Uh, so they're machines that, you know, in their simplest form are essentially a bellows going up and down, pushing air in and out of someone's lungs, and in the most complex form are in, you know, highly technical systems with a lot of options and computer programming that go into it. Is it difficult to connect one to a patient or a patient to a ventilator? Needing to put someone on a ventilator is always a, a sad moment uh, and an upsetting moment for people uh, because it, of course, means that someone is failing in terms of their ability to breathe on their own. The actual process of doing it is something that requires vigilance and is not a benign procedure. Um, you know, there are risks of things that can go wrong when you put someone on a ventilator because essentially you have to take someone and the main thing you need to do is to put them to sleep so that you can then put a breathing tube through their mouth, through their vocal cords and into their lungs. And now we're very experienced at doing this uh, and it's done every day all over the world, you know, hundreds and thousands, millions of times. Um, but obviously saying to someone that, you know, we're going to kind of have to knock you out uh, for a while and put you on a machine to breathe, um, that's a big deal. And so nobody takes that lightly when we have to do that to someone. That said, you know, it is a, a very safe procedure in that we do do it frequently. Everyone who has surgery and general anesthesia, most people end up getting this done to them. Um, they just don't know it. And, uh, and then we stabilize someone. And it can also be a relief because for someone who's struggling to breathe, it can be a very scary feeling. Um, the feeling of unable to get enough air and kind of gasping for breath is uh, very, very upsetting. Setting, uh, what we call dyspnea. And so to give people a break from that can be a huge relief. And I've often gone up to people and sort of said, you know, I think that that uh, kind of you're failing and that we really need to give you a chance to rest because you seem to be struggling so much with your breathing. And I can't tell you how many times they've looked at me and nodded and just sort of said, yes, please do that. I've heard physicians say that they can see that it might be called oxygen hunger in people's eyes. 
Yes, in some people's eyes, although people surprise us. There, you know, <laughs> some people can be sitting there looking quite comfortable with oxygen levels that you know you kind of do a double take when you look at the screen. And that's actually something that has been described specifically in COVID, where uh, it does seem like people who have very low oxygen saturation look more comfortable than we think they should. Um, but certainly, for many patients who are struggling to breathe and need the support of a ventilator, uh, as you say, you can see this this look of, of fear um, because it is a, a scary feeling to not be able to breathe. You said that someone is sedated when they're connected to the ventilator. Do they stay sedated the whole time or not? The question of sedation of patients on ventilation is a, a hot, complicated topic uh, in intensive care. Um, the basic answer is that we give as much sedation as is needed to make sure someone is comfortable. So that means there are people who really don't need any sedation. They're able to sit there and tolerate having this tube in their mouth, into their lungs, and the support of the ventilator, and they're okay without any medication for that. Um, depending on the disease process, what's wrong with their lungs, what's wrong with them, and also uh, everything else going on, they may just need some sedation to protect their lungs so they're not sort of taking giant breaths. But also sometimes we do need to put someone under full sedation or kind of essentially general anesthesia because they're so sick we kind of can't risk that they even move or cough or do anything. And uh, those are certainly our sickest patients. But every day or even every few hours, we're constantly assessing, can someone tolerate less sedation? Can we allow them to wake up? Uh, is it safe yet? And that's our, always our goal. Interesting. I'm going to come back to that uh, in a bit. But first, the essay you initially submitted to STAT was a nearly 3,000-word piece that focused on the history of the machine that eventually became known as the Iron Lung, which was widely used for people with polio. Though we eventually published a shorter version, I want to urge listeners here to check out your original on medium.com. It's a really good read, and you'll learn a lot about the history of uh, the development of the Iron Lung. Uh, Hannah, what inspired you to focus on that topic? Was it caring for COVID patients in the ICU or did your interest start before that? My interest in the topic definitely started before that. Uh, my overall interest is uh, in really that transition and how we got to the point of modern intensive care. And to that end, I'm actually writing a book uh, centered on a Copenhagen polio epidemic in 1952. Now, the thing about that epidemic is they actually didn't have iron lungs. They had one in the entire city of Copenhagen. And so they were hit with this wave of really sick polio patients, many of whom couldn't breathe. And it's really when they figured out that uh, they could do what we consider essentially modern mechanical ventilation, pushing air into the lungs to breathe for someone, what we call positive pressure ventilation. Um, but they didn't have ventilators. And so they had... Uh, up to over the course of a few months, 1,600 medical and dental students sit at the bedside of these patients 24 hours a day breathing for them. Um, but to back up even further, of course, the iron lung really was the beginning of the idea that we could keep someone alive who was struggling to breathe uh, and give them the support from a machine that would help them to breathe. And just to explain, the iron lung works in the opposite way from a ventilator. A ventilator pushes air into the lungs. The iron lung created a vacuum around the body of a person and literally sucked the lungs open. 
And so this actually works quite well. It's, it's quite effective for allowing someone to breathe. The problem is if you get anything in the back of your throat or you kind of a blockage in, in your trachea or anything, and it just gets sucked into your lungs or you can't really swallow well, it becomes a nightmare. The other thing is it's this giant tank that someone's in because it encases their entire body. And it was very hard for them to take care of these patients. Nursing was a nightmare. Um, but as I took care of these patients uh, during COVID, it really did strike me in, a, in particular rounding on patients who had been there for months. And as I was reading about the iron lung for this book I'm writing, uh, it, it really struck me that we hadn't solved the problems that were raised as concerns by the very first people who were creating the iron lung, that they knew from the very beginning that this machine, which they'd envisioned as something for kind of acute care, short term, let's get them through this disease that they're having, this acute process, and then they'll come out the other end and be able to breathe again on their own. That's, that's always the hope and the idea. And yet you have a machine that can kind of keep someone breathing with its help indefinitely. So t t just for a second, what were the medical students doing? Was it like CPR kind of thing? Did they have a, like a mechanical bellows or what were they actually doing? So, so what happened was any patient who came in with polio who they sensed was struggling to breathe, they would immediately do a tracheostomy, which is where they just do a little incision in the neck um, and they put a tube straight through the neck into the trachea and secure that in place. So that gives you what we call an airway, meaning so, you don't And the trachea to, goes to the lungs. Tra yes, trachea goes to the lungs. And so then they attached a tube. Uh, and at the end of that tube was just a, a rubber bag with air and oxygen. And essentially, these students sat by the bedside of all these children and adults and literally breathed for them. They kind of squeezed that bag about 20 to 30 times a minute and did this for six to eight hour shifts, 24 hours a day for months. And they saved hundreds of lives doing this in, the, in that epidemic. And just the, the sheer, I don't know, fortitude to, to do that. And, you know, they're doing this at three o'clock in the morning. They're doing this on Sundays. Or, you know, there's, there's no stopping. There's no break um, because somebody's tired or the next person, they actually write about how sometimes the next medical student didn't show up and they just have to stay and do another shift because they, of course, couldn't walk away from, from the patient. Um, and so I just find that remarkable. And unfortunately, there was discussion of needing to do that in COVID and, you know, with concern about running out of ventilators. I heard some anecdotal reports of kind of short-term use of that. Um, and, you know, and certainly we do that uh, periodically in the ICU for a few minutes here and there sometimes when we're transporting a patient or doing something to them that requires them to be disconnected from the ventilator. But I just can't even imagine doing that. Uh, and the really neat thing is they describe getting to know their patients really well and talking to them and reading to them and uh, finding ways to communicate with these patients who really were basically essentially paralyzed and had, uh, couldn't, couldn't talk back, um, but really getting close and helping them to get through this incredibly difficult time. So 1928 is when two Boston folks, Philip Drinker and Louis Agassiz Shaw Jr., um, who was quite the Boston Brahmin, from what I from what I understand, with roots going back to the Mayflower, they're the two whose names 
I guess, are the centerpiece here. But I imagine it was a whole cast of characters. Tell me what what got them thinking about creating some kind of machine to breathe for people? So it wasn't obvious that these two characters, Philip Drinker and Louis Eggenshaw Jr., would be the ones to create the Iron Lung. Neither was particularly interested in the topic. Um, and <laughs> Philip Drinker, yeah, well, and this is why he called it that damn machine later in life, is Philip Drinker's real interest, passion, was uh, what they called industrial hygiene, kind of, you know, um, kind of health and, and safety in the workplace and things like that. So that was his real interest. Um, but it was sort of serendipitous. He did get involved with uh, a, a company in New York that was interested in this question of sort of resuscitation of people because of um, constant workplace issues with people getting injured and all kinds of accidents. And so he was kind of thinking around the topic more for the idea of resuscitating people who had sustained a bad injury. Um, and then at the same time, he was involved with helping to figure out how to safely take care of premature babies. Hmm. And he was walking through the children's hospital where he was helping to design or had helped to design uh, rooms that would be extra warm, essentially incubators for premature babies. And it required kind of constant maintenance. And he saw the children on the polio wards. Uh, and his sister described how he was really shaken by this, seeing what state they were in. And, and you know, he was it was not something that he thought much about. Um, and then his compatriot, Louis Agassiz Shaw Jr., was actually doing experiments on cats, measuring their respiration using a machine or kind of a device that looked a lot like an iron lung uh, because it kind of sealed up the neck and allowed them to measure the size of the breaths that the cat was taking and they were doing all kinds of uh, physiology around that. And Philip Drinker kind of took a look at it and said, hey, you know, can we kind of, can we keep this cat going if we kind of paralyze them and sedate them and just kind of keep pushing air in and out of this little machine you have? And so they played around with that for a while and ultimately made a, a, a human-sized version, which became the iron lung. He tried it out on himself first. Oh, there's a, there's a long history of that in medicine, isn't there? Absolutely, yes. And vaccines in particular. Um, so uh, anyway, he word got out and in the Children's Hospital, they knew that he had this new machine to try out ultimately uh, that they thought might be helpful for helping kids to breathe with polio. And they got the call uh, in October 1928, a little girl who uh, I actually did some research to find out her name was Bertha Richards. Um, they had the records at Children's Hospital to, of her admission and unfortunately her death. Uh, but the call went out to, um, to them that she was in distress and they wheeled the machine over to try on her. And, um, and it worked in the sense that she had severe polio and they were able to put her in this machine. And normally they were used to just sort of letting someone go once they struggled to breathe. And instead they kept her alive for days. Um, unfortunately, she developed pneumonia and died uh, despite the iron lung. And so it's an interesting start because we don't normally think of people viewing something as successful when the end result is a death. But in their minds, they were able to do with the machine what they wanted to accomplish and felt that there was the potential for its use going forward. But even before that very first use of it, Doctors out on the the, uh, the grass at Children's Hospital sort of stood around, uh, this is documented, discussing kind of whether this was a good idea. 
whether it was a good idea to put someone in a machine not knowing whether they'd ever be able to breathe on their own again. What were some of the arguments against it? I think they viewed it as potentially cruel, uh, that you could end up with someone who was dependent for life living in an iron lung. And that certainly has happened. Uh, there are people who have lived a lifetime in an iron lung. Um, some who chose actually over the years as as technology improved and we did have the ability to give them portable mechanical ventilators, but some people preferred the iron lung. They found it more comfortable and were able to live at home in these devices. Um, but uh, I think, you know, for, for doctors of the time, particularly an era when literally they would be labeled as crippled, uh, that was the term they would use, that the idea of being essentially chained to a machine for life was sort of uh, incomprehensible to people. Um, the difference we have now is we have all this other technology and machines and equipment and medications such that we can really keep someone kind of ticking along who uh, has a lot more wrong with them than just difficulty breathing. And that's where this concept of persistent critical illness comes in, where these people aren't looking at able to go home because they're so weak in so many ways. So describe persistent critical illness for us. So, uh, you know, it's, it's had different names over the years. Some call it chronic critical illness. Some call it prolonged mechanical ventilation, although it's definitely more than just that. Um, but it's this constellation of problems that people have um, that have been described over the years that's pretty consistent, where usually it's someone who is too weak to breathe on their own, so they are dependent on the ventilator. Sometimes they also have things like kidney failure, where they may be dependent on dialysis, uh, Usually the blood pressure is, or often the blood pressure is quite low, such that they may be on and off what we call vasopressors, medication to keep the blood pressure up. And um, their body and their kind of immune system is just uh, out of whack, basically, such that they usually are very prone to recurrent infections and often kind of have bout after bout of what we call sepsis or septic shock overwhelming infection. And so it is this kind of constellation of problems that then, unfortunately, once you're in the ICU and having these problems, all kinds of other problems happen as well. We can give them antibiotics and everything, but fundamentally, it's up to the body itself as to whether ultimately with all of that time and support, it's going to strengthen or not. And unfortunately, often it doesn't. So both mechanical ventilation and the you know, the things that can be done in an ICU today sound like they're on a, a really huge spectrum from my worst nightmare to medical miracle. And and things like that always generate ethical dilemmas. What are some of the ethical, the key ethical dilemmas that are associated with putting somebody on a ventilator and then taking them off? Key ethical dilemmas, well, there's a lot of them in intensive care. They come in sort of all shapes and sizes. Um, I, I would say really the hardest one is that decision of when to stop for people. And for some people, it's very clear cut. They have very clear wishes. They've documented it. Their family knows it. They sort of say, you know, a week or, you know, if I not, if you don't think I'm going to wake up or whatever it is, we know, we have good guidance as to when they're kind of saying enough or they're able to tell us themselves. But for other people, and I think this is the hardest thing, certainly I find in the ICU, is these patients who day to day, they're still there with you. They're able to nod hello. They're able to squeeze your hand. They smile when their family comes in. 
And yet their chance of actually ever leaving the intensive care unit is just minuscule. The other one that kind of is the, maybe makes that particularly hard is when you have a, a family who, for whatever reason, religious, otherwise, basically says you can never stop. You know, don't ever stop what you're doing. And we we don't talk about stopping care, but we talk about transitioning to comfort care and different focus of our care. And so we do end up what we call with moral distress, this, this feeling of doing things to people that are painful. You know, we do blood draws, we poke them for new IVs, we turn them when they have bed sores, we try to move them around in bed when they've got kind of muscles that are um, contractured and, and, um, and sore. And at a certain point, if we don't think we can get people better, um, it does get very hard to continue to do that for the nurses, the doctors, the physical therapists, everybody taking care of patients. We certainly want to be guided by patients and families with regard to what they choose. Um, but it's very hard when we know that there's a lot of pain, discomfort involved with something where we don't see an end in sight. Can you recall a particularly difficult conversation you had with a patient or family members about stopping? I've had so many, <laughs> unfortunately, that uh, I and I recall many of them quite vividly um, there. I would say what haunt me the most is trying to help patients and families make a decision they're comfortable with. And when particularly, again, day to day, someone might be awake and interactive, uh, able to communicate, but there's no hope of their leaving uh, and trying to help them to come to terms with that and uh, and the distress that causes. And I, I think also uh, one of the, some of the, the hardest times is when families don't know what a patient would choose for themselves. And they're trying to make decisions without the input of a patient who's too sick to be involved with the conversations. I'm trying to picture Drinker and Shaw wheeling their machine down Longwood Avenue to Children's Hospital, probably thinking about putting somebody on the machine. Do you think they had thought in advance about taking someone off? I do. Drinker wrote a bit about this, um, and uh, the doctors who worked with him also did. And they, they write about the distress that it would be to have to turn off one of these machines on someone. Um, and they didn't really know. They were in the Wild West when it came to this sort of thing. It sounds like you really enjoy historical research. I have been. I've come to it late. Uh, it's not, uh, I've been mostly someone who does a lot of epidemiology and health services research and critical care. That's been uh, my focus for the past 20 years or so. Uh, but I've really enjoyed diving back into the history and gaining a better understanding of kind of how we got here. Does medical historical research influence medical care today or can it? That's a great question. Um, I think it can. It certainly has given me a much greater appreciation for every ventilator I wheel in, into a room, or I shouldn't say <laughs> I wheel in, the respiratory therapist wheels in uh, to, to help. Um, and it, it certainly had made me think about, even before COVID-19, 
what happens if we run out of ventilators? Because I was aware, you know, there was a time when we didn't have such things. Um, I do also find it helpful. I, I do a lot of research on sort of staffing models uh, for care in the intensive care unit. How do we best staff ICUs with physicians and nurses and the whole team of respiratory therapists and pharmacists and everybody? Um, and there's less written on it than you might think. Um, but what's interesting is a lot of our models for care are actually really based on care models from the 1950s. And so I've even written a piece that I call getting out of the 1950s and kind of rethinking based on how much intensive care has changed and how complex these patients are. Do we need to rethink a bit how we take care of patients there and how we staff things to balance the needs of the patients against the intense, uh, well, intense environment that they are in and the challenges for the team taking care of them. So let me ask a last question that melds the two parts of your professional life. Uh, knowing what you know from your historical research about intensive care and mechanical ventilation and what you know from being an intensive care physician, have you written down your choices for what you'd want if the time came for you to need mechanical ventilation? That's a great question. Um, so <laughs> the answer to that technically is no, but uh, I have had a conversation with the person, a uh, family member who is would be responsible for making decisions for me. Uh, and uh, I would say that uh, there are sort of three things you can do. You can have a conversation with your doctor so that they're very aware. You can write them down uh, and you can have a conversation with the person who is going to be responsible if and when you can't make your own decisions. And at the end of the day, that third is far and away the most important um, because no matter what you write down on a piece of paper, it can be very hard to figure out whether it exactly fits a given scenario. Uh, and we've also discovered, unfortunately, family members in the heat of the moment sometimes will override those choices if they feel differently themselves and or haven't had that conversation with someone. And so I find that things are smoothest and easiest and happiest for everybody when the person who's making decisions for someone is, is well-versed in what they would choose. Um, so yes, I do think that that's important. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for talking with me today. I've learned a lot about COVID-19, mechanical ventilation, and the history of the iron lung. It's fascinating. Well, thank you so much for the time. I really enjoyed sharing it with you. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners. Please let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast should take on. You can do that by sending an email to first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please leave a review or rating on whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. That's it for now. Be well during this strange and uncertain time.